Take seats or listen on as I read Romans chapter 6 verses, verses 3 and 4. And for the sake of continuity, I'll begin in chapter 5 verse 20, but the emphasis of the sermon is upon verses 3 and 4. As we go on with Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 then. Moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded grace abounded much more. That as sin reigned in death even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for uh, the glory and the, the clarity of your word. And we ask you that. Now, through the preaching, you might, as it were, shed a light upon the bright light of your word and dispel any darkness which still lingers in our understanding and and practically which we are failing to work out in our lives. Here is a great truth that we ought to grasp fully, that we ought to reckon as true as ourselves and that we ought to know, as Paul says. God, oh, that we might know it now and come to know it even better by the preaching. With the help of your spirit, we ask in Jesus name. Amen. We've seen in light of what uh, Paul has been saying in Romans chapters 1 through 5, but especially in chapter 5 at the very end, just before he comes to chapter 6. And it's always helpful to remember that there's no chapter headings in the Greek. It just went straight through. So Paul had just said where sin abounded through the law, grace abounded all the more through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Having just said that. Paul is aware of this counter argument or this accusation, which the gospel, it seems, inevitably always brings. And even as I've uh, tried to suggest that the antinomian, which is in all of our hearts and in our flesh, suggests in us as well. There is something about uh, us in our sinfulness that the gospel awakens, and that is a desire to sin. The accusation, which was made by the opponents, and again, uh, The opportunity that our sinful hearts see is that the effect of this teaching about grace, grace abounding through the abundance of sin, is that this teaching about grace encourages and emboldens man to sin more and not less. If you teach this, you you can read history. You can read not just the history of the Reformation, but you can read the history of the First Great Awakening. You can see it in the early church. It's obvious. That there were opponents who were saying, if you preach this, you will not find moral reformation, but you will find moral license in the churches. You are only encouraging them to sin more and not less. Again, that is the inevitable response to such teaching concerning the free grace of God and the free offer of salvation without works, without righteousness. Come unto me, Jesus says. The teaching which concerns 
the abundance of grace in the presence of an abundance of sin. But what Paul does here, as we've seen, is to refute it, certainly not, and to show us how this suggestion reveals a total misunderstanding of the doctrine he's been teaching. If you go back to chapter 4 and look at what he says, and I want to have in mind here the first part of the sermon, what Paul has been saying in chapters 4 and 5. To remind us how unthinkable the suggestion was. Well, chapter 4. The suggestion, by the way, is let us sin that grace may abound. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Chapter 4, what is the subject? It's faith. He's telling us about the man who is blessed, who believes and is forgiven. Psalm 32, that's David. And also the man, uh, especially he focuses on Abraham. The man who, this is the end of the chapter, who like Abraham, believes in God and he doubts not. He places his trust fully in God. Here is a man who believes on God, not just in God, but on God, as though to lean upon him as a close personal friend. Abraham placing his trust in the personal being of God. And thus he relies on him and he trusts upon his word and he makes the whole of his life And the whole of his faith to depend upon the word of God. That is what faith is. And that is the kind of faith that receives the blessing of forgiveness, even for the sinner. But I ask you, in light of that teaching, chapter 4, David, Abraham, even you, who has faith, is that a man who conceives of grace and of his relationship with God as a kind of license to sin? The fact that I'm so close to God, the fact that he's forgiven me, this only gives me greater license to sin. Do you find David and Abraham saying in the Old Testament or in the Psalms, well, if God is going to forgive me, then I'm going to sin? Is that the argument? Of course, that isn't the argument. So we come to chapter six. Paul makes that abundantly clear. And that is true of everyone. That is true of uh, everyone in the Old Testament, everyone in the New Testament. And that ought to be true of everyone in this church who has the same kind of faith, the kind of faith that leans and rests on God and receives every blessing that he has to offer to us from his son. That is not to say that Abraham and David had no sin. Clearly they did. Why then, uh, if that is so, if I'm saying they had no sin, the emphasis on the primary blessing they sought and received from God, namely forgiveness. Obviously they had sin. But if this is what they found from God and were thus blessed. Do you think that that led them on to further sin as a kind of argument that emboldened them along those lines? The logic of the gospel is, well, let me begin with the logic of the devil. I've been referring to that, haven't I? Thomas Brooks. The devil is the one who says, let us grace that sin may abound. That's the devil's logic. But the logic of the gospel is this. What Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery Daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And if you'll just ponder that thought, what that means, then you will be well on your way to understanding what it was that Paul was arguing for in Romans. Going beyond chapter 4 to chapter 5, and I think this is even more crucial to our understanding of what he later comes to in chapter chapter 6. And now I'm remembering the other portion of scripture I wanted to read before the sermon. I hope you're familiar enough with what he says in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read it. But what he says uh, there 
is about the man who, like Abraham, has faith and thus has been justified. He begins, therefore, having been justified by faith, and then goes on to to list in those 11 verses uh, all of the blessings, the abundance of blessings that comes to the man who has a faith like Abraham and who is thus justified. Not only forgiveness, but many other things besides. He's speaking of the man like Abraham who is justified and who knows it about himself. He has placed his trust in God, and so he has begun to enjoy the blessing of forgiveness, but many other blessings besides. And so look at him through the lens of those 11 verses. He is, first of all, at peace with God. He's enjoying the certainty. He's at rest. He's no longer striving for acceptance through his works. And so he, as Paul says next, standing in grace. Following that, he is assured of God's love, having that very love poured into his heart by the Holy Spirit of God. He is rejoicing in every tribulation. Here is a man, Paul says, the man who is justified and who knows it, who is immovable. He is a man who is assured and who enjoys assurance. And his his assurance, rather, not his enjoyance, his assurance comes solely from God. As he places his trust and his faith in God. So he enjoys assurance from God. Having believed in him. And let me ask you then. In light of that. Description of the Christian man. Who is a faith like Abraham. Who is justified and who who knows it. Is it conceivable. That in those verses that Paul is describing the antinomian. The man who looks upon the grace of God. And seizes it as an opportunity To go further and deeper into sin. Not only to continue in sin, but to go further and further. Or is he describing the Christian who is rejoicing in God and who is living for God in all that he does? What Paul is describing in those 11 verses, and for my part I find them to be some of the most important verses in the whole of the book. They belong together with the very end of chapter 8, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. He is describing the believer's experience of grace. And grace, you remember, is the very issue at question. What does grace bring about in a man's life? What does it do to him? Does it embolden him to sin or does it do something else? He's describing, to use the language of chapter 5, verse 20, the abundance of grace that the believer has found in Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. He's describing how grace comes into a man's life, a sinner's life, and it changes everything about him for the better. It changes his outlook. It changes his disposition, his life, his values. It changes his heart. It gives him a confidence in God that he once did not have. This is the experience, Paul says, of everyone who is a true Christian, the experience of grace Saving grace. All who are justified freely by his grace. And all who are sure of it. And the question that I would ask you. Before we ever get to chapter 6. Although we're here aren't we? But before we get to it in this sermon at least. Is does it describe you? Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11. The experience of abundant grace that the sinner finds at the foot of the cross. Do you read Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 as a description of yourself? You who claim to be a 
Christian? Do you know what it is and what it means to be justified by faith and to enjoy this blessing? To stand in this grace immovable, to be rejoicing in God always, even and especially in the face of tribulation, to be at peace with God and to live for him. If not, if you do not read those verses as a description of yourself, well, then I say to you, you needn't bother with chapter six. You're not ready for it. You're not ready for the arguments that Paul presents there. You ought to go back to chapter five and to be sure, first of all, whether you have been justified in just the way that Paul has been describing it. Do you know the grace of God as Paul knew it? As he presents it in Romans. Are you a Christian? Who has been justified by faith? And who has had the love of God poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit? Aside from that. As a third section of review. There's what he says in verses 12 through 21. Leading up to chapter 6. And he's reminding us there in this great contrast between Adam and Christ that the Christian, this blessed man who has faith that he's describing in chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 is someone who's no longer in Adam, but he's now in Christ. And we can never lose sight of this, or at least we can't lose sight of it until we get to Romans chapter 9. This is a crucial consideration and we'll keep coming back to it. If you think, for instance, of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, as though to say, in parenthesis, and no longer in Adam. The great contrast between Adam and Christ has got to be kept in mind. We have to know what it means to be in Christ. We have to realize that Jesus Christ is the, is the source of the believer's justification and life. Just as Adam had been the source of the natural man's condemnation and death. And so what we're dealing with, looking at Romans more uh, fully, is the contrast between Adam and, uh, or excuse me, I already said that. We are looking at the doctrines of union with Christ and the free grace of God. Union with Christ and the free grace of God. We are justified freely by his grace. That's a quote from Paul, the free grace of God. And the way that happens is by God causing us to stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our union with Jesus Christ. Uh, John Murray has a way of putting this that I find very helpful. He says, let me let me see if I can find it. This is principles of conduct. He says, if we are the partakers of God's free grace, it is in with union. It is in union with Christ that we have been thus blessed. If we if we are partakers of God's free grace, it is in union with Christ that we have thus been blessed. We become partakers of God's free grace in union with Christ. That's the point. And those are the doctrines which stand at the forefront as we come now to what he says in chapter six. And it's just here that the error comes in. The error is this, that grace makes one indifferent to holiness. But how can that be, Paul says? Have you even followed the argument? Do you imagine that God is indifferent to the way we live? Is it really true that you, and this is what the antinomian is, hence the name antinomian. Is it true that you really believe that grace is a kind of anti-law? Is that what 
I meant, Paul is saying, when I said that God justifies the ungodly freely by his grace, that he just leaves them in their sin, even though he has justified them. Obviously not. Obviously not. Just if you take those chapters on their own, I think I think uh, I've made clear at this point. We need to realize Again, the issue at stake is not the law. The law comes later in chapter 7. The issue is at stake is our understanding of grace and how it is that we, as believers in Jesus, come to experience grace. And here is the form that the error takes, that grace makes us indifferent to holiness. And I want to emphasize this very strongly. It, 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 it abstracts grace as an idea from the person who is its source. It it abstracts grace from the person in whom it it, it resides in full measure. That is Jesus Christ. It looks at grace apart from Jesus Christ. Going back to the Murray quote, uh, let me just read it again. He says, if we are partakers of God's free grace, it is in union with Christ that we've thus been blessed. That's how we come to know and experience the grace of God or I find in my study for these sermons, I'm reading the commentaries less and I'm reading these books more. Murray, Ferguson, Walter Marshall now. Be ready for Walter Marshall quotes in the sermons to come. But this is what Sinclair Ferguson says in his book, The Whole Christ. I thought this captured it perfectly. And he was dealing with uh, the, Mar- the Marrow brothers who were accused of antinomianism. But he, this is what uh, Ferguson says as a, as a summary of their response. The benefits of the gospel, justification, reconciliation, redemption, adoption, were being separated from Christ, who is himself the gospel. The benefits of the gospel are in Christ. They do not exist apart from him. They are ours only in him. And so how does Paul combat this distortion of grace? By asserting once more our union with Christ, stated as being baptized into Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, verse 3. That is the way to understand Christ, or excuse me, grace. To see uh, Jesus Christ as uh, himself the embodiment of grace. The one who came bringing the fullness of grace. The one who even now possesses a fullness of grace. To summarize the way Marshall puts it, I won't read this lengthy quote I read this week. I thought thought of sharing it. I think it would be too much. But something like this. The man who has faith will find a fullness of grace in Jesus Christ from which he might ever draw forth, but never in any other way. He will never find grace outside of Jesus, but in Jesus. He will always find treasured up in him the fullness of grace. You've been baptized into Christ, Jesus, Paul says. Another way of stressing the same truth that he was in chapter 5. He varies the expression, it is true. He does it again in in verse 5. He says, we've been united together in the likeness of his death. You saw what he said in Colossians chapter 2. We've been circumcised into his circumcision. He varies the expression. But it all amounts to the same thing, and that is, namely, that we who are Christians are in Christ. And what that means, let me state again, is that your experience of grace 
is, uh, is derived solely from your relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can't abstract the grace of God from the person of Jesus Christ. Just as soon as you do that, you may end up saying what these men were saying. Looking at grace as a kind of license for sin. But so long as you locate the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, as scripture always does, then you will always see. And you will always understand your own experience of grace in connection with him. And so the emphasis here is upon our baptism into Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Paul assumes that this is the common experience of believers. This is not something that the believer will someday hope to enjoy. Now, in, in, in the older holiness teaching, that's how it was sometimes taught. This liberation from the power of sin. That's something that comes later, after your conversion. That's not what Paul is describing here. He's describing it as something that's common to all Christians. He says, as many of us, and therefore we. How shall we who died to sin? Uh, no, that, that's, sorry, that was the other, that was verse 2. Verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into his death, and so on. He's speaking to the Christian church. He's speaking to everyone who was there. Everyone who had placed their trust in Jesus Christ. You are baptized into him. Now, let me make something clear to distinguish it from what I just did. He's not talking about water baptism. He wasn't talking about water baptism in Colossians chapter 2. I know the point is disputed, but I'll dispute it. It's not talking about water baptism. He's talking, beloved, about baptism by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about that spiritual reality which water baptism represents. The beginning of the new life which occurs in a man's conversion. And this is the truth of which the waters of baptism symbolize, but which they do not actually confer. They signify, they seal those saving blessings, but they do not confer them. The Apostle Paul, and again, this is evident in the way he varies his expression. It's also evident in the very truth he's expressing, is describing something spiritual. Not the waters of baptism, but what happens to a man in the inner man. Something which theologians call even mystical, namely our union with Christ. And so it's often referred as the mystical union with Jesus Christ. The way in which, by faith, the believer is now made to live in Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. And likewise, Christ now lives out his life in you. And this union has two facets, according to Paul. And I I want to finish the Murray quote here. Again, he says, If we are partakers of God's free grace, it is in union with Christ that we have thus been blessed. And if if in union with Christ, then it is in union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Two facets. First, baptism into His death. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, that is, as many of us have come by faith into him, were baptized into his death? That is the first thing. Verse 3. How clear, let me say again, it is that we are dealing with spiritual truths. Paul is no more speaking of water baptism 
here, then he is speaking of us actually literally being present with Christ when he died and dying with him there as though on a cross. And yet he speaks of our baptism into his death, our participation in that event. It is a description undoubtedly of a spiritual union. That just as I was made to participate in Adam's first sin by virtue of my union with him as though I were really there. When he sinned, that's Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. So in a like manner, by faith, I am made to partake, in Christ, or partake or participate even in Christ's death in the same way. As though I were really there, dying with him, the moment I believe. But before we consider the believer's death with Christ, we have to consider Christ's death. That death. What it meant for him. What it led to in his own experience and what it meant was this, his own death to sin. That's what Paul says. It meant that he was finished with with sin now, now and forever. Verse 10, he later says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What you have to remember, I know that the language is almost shocking to say that Christ died to sin but what you have to remember is that christ we all know this is true he was made sin for a time though he had no sin just as he was made under the law even though he was the lawgiver it was a temporary experience for him as he dwelt with us in the days of his flesh on this earth and because of that because our sin was imputed to him He was made to suffer and to die for sin. I want to be sure that I said this. I think I said this, but let me be clear. He was made sin, though he had no sin. Okay, He had no personal sin, but our sin he bore on his body. And so he had a relationship to sin, a temporary relationship to sin, which began at his birth, but one which was nonetheless real. Not one of personal sin, but one in which he bore our sins on his body, which Isaiah says, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, which Matthew then quotes in chapter 8. He bore our sins, and so he bore their penalty. That is what sent him to the cross. It was the sins of ours which he bore. That is what killed him and sent him further to the grave. He not only died, but was buried. Yes, but when he died and when he was buried, do you do you realize, Paul says, that was the end? He died to sin there once for all and forever. What this means is that sin no longer had any hold or claim on him. He died to it. He left sin as a power, as a force there in the grave, never to trouble him again. His body arose, but sin itself was left there in the grave. But going beyond that, Paul says, do you see what this means for you if you are in him? If by faith we are enabled to draw from his fullness. If we, by the freeness of God's grace, are in union with Christ. That's a rough summary of the quote I read earlier. It means, as surely as he has died to sin, so have you. That is the whole argument. How did it happen? 
not by anything you have done or felt, no more than you were made to participate in Adam's sin by anything you did. No, it was simply this, that you were in him, comprehended in him, just as you once were in Adam. And so, once you've been placed into Christ, you were made to participate in his death. I want to read a, Marshall, uh, a Walter Marshall quote now, page uh, 35 of his book, uh, or 30, 35, yes. He says that we were crucified together with Christ, and it is destroyed in us, or, or, or excuse me, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and it is destroyed in us, not by any wounds that we ourselves can give to it, but by our partaking of that freedom from it and that death unto it that is already wrought out for us in the death of Christ and signified in our baptism. Not by anything we have done, not by the fatal blow that we have wielded, he says, to the old man of sin who was in Adam, but solely by our participation with Christ in his death to sin. But that's only half the story, Paul says. You were also raised with him just as he does in other places. And here is the complete picture. And here in verse 4, we now go beyond the idea of death to sin. He says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Death to sin, uh, for the first three verses, was the key thought. It was our death to sin with Christ that made the suggestion of verse 1 so unthinkable that we would sin that grace might abound. But here in verse 4 and to the end of the chapter, we begin to consider something positive, the positive side. That following his death to sin, and again beginning with Christ, his death to sin, following that, he was raised from the, from the grave and there he began to live a new life. In other words, what we see in his resurrection is that he was not held by death. Sin had a claim on him, but it wasn't a permanent one. Whatever grip sin had, that he allowed it to have on him, he was able to break free. Yes, it was able to claim even his last breath and to bring his precious body into the grave for a time, but it was not able to keep him there. There he lay for three days, but only that. Truly dead, but only for a time. But when he rose from the grave, do you realize, Paul says, in the life of Jesus Christ, the God man, it was the beginning of something new. Not only the end of something old, but the beginning of a new life. Now sin wasn't in the picture. Now the life he lives, he lives completely to, to God for the sake of the elect. It is amazing to think of all that he did. And suffered for our sins. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, look at him now. Consider him as he now is, the resurrected, exalted Lord. And then realize that even as this was true of him, to use the exact phrasing from verse 4, even as, so it is true of you. Do you see that as the argument? Because we are in him, we have not only died to sin, but we've risen out of it. We have come into a new existence, risen with him out of the grave, 
we enjoy now a new life, free from the power and the dominion of sin. Something positive, something glorious, affected by the very glory of the Father himself. You who were once dead in sin, Ephesians chapter 2, have been raised up with Christ. And your life is now hid with him in the heavenly places. I'm somewhat conflating the Pauline language here. Ephesians 1, Colossians 3, Ephesians 2. The point is, Christ brought you out of the grave with him. God raised you up with him and seated you with him in the heavenly places. Obviously, I say again, this is a spiritual reality. It's apprehended only by faith, not by sight, still less by works. But it is no less true to the one who, like Abraham, has faith justifying faith here is Paul says the power the beginning of of the power of a new life at work in you the formation of a new life patterned after that life which was first formed in Jesus Christ a new disposition what John Murray calls the dynamic by which true holiness is lived out Indeed, Paul says, even the same power by which God raised his own son from the dead. And do you really think, I have so much more to say, thank God, there are many sermons uh, still yet to preach. But do you really think that such a person that I have been describing is meant to go on with sin? Is he not meant now to live out this new life unto God and for God? Let me read you, uh, Marshall, again now what he says about the resurrection. His resurrection was our resurrection to the life of holiness as Adam's fall was our fall into spiritual death. And we are not ourselves the first makers and formers of our new holy nature any more than our original corruption. But both are formed ready for us to partake of them. And by union with Christ, we partake of that spiritual life. That he took possession of for us at his resurrection. The life that he began to live. The new life in the resurrection. Leaving sin behind. That is a life he began to live for us. And by faith and union with him. We are now partakers of that life. Do you realize that? My closing question to you. I know I've gone long. Uh, I'm not sure that I have actually. We just have a full service. My closing question to you is simply this. Do you know it? What I have been describing to you, is it something new or is it something that you know? Look again at how Paul Paul puts it. Or do you not know? As though to say, how is it possible that you claim to have this experience of grace and still claim that you do not know it? That you don't know what it means? You don't know what it is to be liberated from the power of sin. You don't know what it is now with Christ to rise up out of sin and to live a life fully unto God. To be baptized into him, sharing in his death to sin and his new life to God. That is what Paul is describing here. Do you know it? Are you aware of it? And are you living the Christian life in light of it? Even so, Paul says, even so we should also walk. In newness of life, even as Christ did and even as he enables us now to do. Amen. Let us now come to the table.
Well, as I said, it's a very full service, but I always count it as a blessing when uh, we get to have both sacraments administered in the same service. So praise God for that. And so having uh, administered baptism, we move on now from the preaching to the Lord's Supper. Let's see. Let me just read to you uh, from Matthew chapter 26, the words of institution. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you. I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, as ever, and especially in light of Romans chapter six, I want to stress the grace of God, which is present in this means of grace and the way in which Jesus connects uh, our experience of grace with his death. Uh, And this is another thing you'll find Murray saying, I think it's such a wonderful way of describing uh, what we're considering, and I, and I wish I had said it in the sermon, but let me immediately improve the sermon here by saying, in Romans chapter 6, Paul isn't so much describing Christ's death, but ours. The fact not only that Christ died for us, that's true, now this is how Murray puts it, but the fact that we died with him. We died with him. Again, you see uh, the man in Adam sinning with Adam in his fall. So you ought to see the man who is in Christ rising up with him in his resurrection and and all of the grace that he now experienced uh, flows to him by his uh, by virtue of his participation in the death and resurrection of jesus christ it, it, it isn't enough i say with reverence that christ should die and be raised if we should have no part in it as calvin says so long as he remains outside of us he is of no benefit to us but just as soon as we get into him by faith and he into us. Uh, So we begin to experience the fullness of grace, which is hid in him. That's what the Lord's Supper is, beloved. I hope you see it that way. I hope you see that Christ is saying here, I want you to partake of me. And though uh, if you enjoy union with him already by faith and thus grace, these are things which can be strengthened, and which ought to be strengthened. Thus, the means of grace become opportunities to grow in grace. That's common language that we Christians use. And know that it might be so for us, an opportunity to be strengthened and to grow and to be brought more closely into conformity with Christ, who is our head. Uh, But having said uh, those words of explanation, I would invite all who have such faith to come, all who place their trust fully in Christ. I would also say at the same time uh, a word of warning or what we call a word of fencing that Uh, The unregenerate, the unrepentant, the apostate, the wayward, the Judas. I always point out it's fascinating that Judas was there at the table and it was there that his apostasy became clear. The the table is a way of finding you out. I warn you not to come. It's amazing to see how uh, the apostasy speeds on once you partake and eat and drink damnation unto yourself. That's a strong warning. But I, I would come back around on the other side and say, to all who have faith, to all who wish to be reconciled to God, to all who who, who truly repent of their sins, come unto Jesus Christ in the table. 
And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for the gift of the Lord's Supper. We take it uh, very seriously. Uh, we, we understand that this is a solemn ordinance that you have set up just as we find the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And, and, and we with them, you, you tell us to, well, to be very careful how we partake of these things, how we handle them. Because in handling them, we're handling you. We're handling your mercies, but also your judgment. That's a solemn thing, Lord. We ask you that you might give us the faith and the grace to come and that you might equally strengthen us, but that you would even find out the way where the unrepentant and that you perhaps through this means would bring him, bring him back. And so these things we pray in Jesus name. Amen.